quiet, please. Quiet, please. Broadcasting system presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called How Beautiful Upon the Mountain. I don't say that Mount Everest will never be successfully climbed. I don't say that at all. What I do say, however, is that no one will ever successfully climb Everest and come back. Yes, I know they said that about the Matterhorn. And Edward Wimper climbed it. Wimper was the man who first stated what many mountain climbers insist is the creed of their arduous calling. You don't know that? Well, it was many years ago after he'd made the first successful ascent of the Matterhorn. Someone asked him why he could not see a mountain without wanting to climb it. His reply was simple, and it's become historic. Because it's there, he said. And mountain climbers the world over will solemnly assure you that that is their reason, too. I beg to differ. I think there's another reason. A compulsion in the hearts of certain brave men and women that has existed since the beginnings of time. A compulsion that they very probably never realize is there. A compulsion that is revealed only to a rare few of those that lift up their eyes to the hills. I think it is because the mountains have always been the earthly, abiding place of divinity. I think it's because certain mortals are consumed by a subconscious cosmic curiosity to find the abode of the gods. By an urge to seek and an overpowering hope to find naked divinity at last incarnate on the roof of the world. But these divinities do not welcome human intrusion. Men have walked upon the peak of Mount Olympus where Zeus and Hera, Pallas Athena, and Aphrodite dwelt and have not found them. Quetzalcoatl has departed from the high peak to the Mexican Cordilleras where men have vainly sought him there. And though the specter of the Bakken sometimes appears today, the traveler knows it to be only the magnified image of himself. But still the ancient secret compulsion exists. And men climb mountains because of it. In all the recorded history of the world, no known man has ever conquered Everest. The reason? Well, they speak of unclimbable walls, of the lethargy that comes from lack of oxygen. They speak of insufferable cold, of howling winds and sudden storms, of impassable crevasses and monstrous avalanches. And these things are true. I've experienced them myself. But there are avalanches and crevasses and winds and snow and cold on other mountains, and men have climbed them. Could it be that the gods have tired of retreating and have set a barrier on this, their last refuge, against the men of the plains? No man has ever looked upon the summit of Everest more than five miles above the level of the distant sea. Many men have flown near Everest, hoping for a glance at the highest spot on Earth, but Everest has evaded them. In the motion picture that the Marcus of Clydesdale made more than 15 years ago when he became the first man to fly over the mountain, the eternal veil, the plume of Everest, 
reached out and covered the peak. You haven't heard of that? Well, if you ever have an opportunity to see those pictures, go. Perhaps what you see will help convert you to my way of thinking. Ceaselessly, day in and day out, in sunshine and in storm, a great plume of ice crystals and powder snow streams out from the crest of the mountain. The terrible white banner that can instantly become a great whip to lash down at the mountain's own flanks as if to drive off some intruder toiling up the incredible slopes to the virgin summit. Yes, I have seen that. Others have seen it, too. Irvine and Lee Mallory saw it, the two men who came closest to the top. And the others of their party saw the plume snatch at them as they struggled upward. And when it lifted again, they had disappeared. No man has seen them since. They did find the ice axe Lee Mallory carried. They found it far down the slopes from where the plume snatched the two men away. And it was curiously bent and twisted, the sturdy, high-tension steel. I met John Shandos when I was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. We became great friends through our mutual interest in mountain climbing. I wish you could have seen John Shandos standing before the mantel in my rooms at Oxford on a bleak, rainy day in early autumn. I'm fed to the teeth, Hugh, with this place. Let's oh, yeah. chuck it and go somewhere. Climb a mountain nobody else has climbed. <sighs> yeah, what mountain, old boy? Well, Everest by choice. Hmm. You got 50,000 pounds? I could get it. All right, let's go. I mean it. I could get it. Where? Never mind where. Now, look, would you come? Are you serious? I'm serious. Oh, I wish you were. I tell you I am. Yeah, of course, you know it'd probably be the end of us. Rather have it that way than drying up bit by bit in Oxford, wouldn't you? I would, yes. Well, then? I haven't a cent. <laughs> a shilling, I mean. You won't need it. I've got plenty. Well, why Everest? Look, Brent, old boy. Ever since I was a child, I've had one, only one, ambition. You got a cigarette? Hmm. Oh, tough. To see the top of Everest. And I'm going to. Come along, dude. <laughs> now, what are you laughing at? Well, just the casual way you put it. Let's go see the top of Everest, you and I. <laughs> Half the world away, five miles straight up, dozens of men have died and disappeared trying it. Let's go see the top of Everest. <laughs> Someone's going to do it one day, you know. Yes, that's true. Well, shall we be the one? And on that casual basis, the Shandos Brandt Mount Everest expedition began. We left Oxford. We left England after purchasing thousands of pounds worth of equipment, tents, windproof clothing, weapons and photographic equipment, dehydrated foods, batons, ice axes, cases of brandy, miscellaneous equipment by the hundredweight. And at last we were in Darjeeling, talking to men who knew the roof of the world, learning the names of obscure villages, where we might find guides to lead us to the upper reaches of the great white mountain. And a day came when our preparations were completed and a great deal of money spent. And we set out in motor cars to the final takeoff spot where no motor could go and only the feet of men had walked before. 
The native guides, as hard-bitted a crew as ever I saw, gathered around their tiny fires. We sat before our little tents and smoked and drank hot, sweet tea against the morning. <sighs> Glad, eh, Brent? Yes, in a way. Not going to be pleasant, though. Oh, it won't be too bad for a while. Till we get up really high. Oh, no, no. No worse than some places I've been. I wonder what's up there. Can't tell much from the photographs, can we? Just ice and snow and rock. And plenty of it. Quite. You know, I was wondering something today. What? I was wondering if any of these native chaps have been up there. On top? Yes. They like them, you know, to be laughing at the silly white men. Coming halfway around the world to be the first man on top. While all the time, old Bungo and his nephew have been up there a dozen times. Good joke. <laughs> no, I doubt it, Chandos. Oh, so do I, really. But you know these chaps? Well, none of them seem any too enthusiastic about going up. Not if you go by the pay they'd insisted on. Well, you know, Everest is uh, some kind of a god or something to them. Hmm. Is to me, too. What? Oh, I, I know it sounds silly, but... Maybe we're being sacrilegious or something. Maybe nobody's supposed to climb up there. Not getting uh, cold feet, are you? Oh, no, not at all. They're quite warm, thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, more of your American slang. <laughs> no, I've not got the wind up, if that's what you mean. But... Superstition. I... I was thinking. I mean... I wonder what is waiting for us, for us up there. Cold and snow and ice and thin air. Besides that? What do you mean? I'm remembering what that chap wrote about our vine and Lee Mallory and the plume up there. Down it came, he said, like a sentient thing, like the hand of a god, and swept them away before my very eyes. Now, look, you begin to worry about giants and things up there. You'd better stay here. Oh, I'm not worried, Brant. I'm just curious. Somehow, I'm excited. Like a chap who's waiting to meet his bride at the church on his wedding day. <laughs> I say, that's being a bit idiotic, isn't it? <laughs> look at her up there. Cold and white and beautiful. Not caring about us at all. We're coming up after you, old girl, if we die in the attempt. And as I lay there in the firelight, listening to the quiet music that came from the shadowy groups of guides and bearers, a strange thought formed in my mind. Shouldn't John Chandos have said, and, and die in the attempt? And the sound of the little flute went on in the cold twilight, and presently we went to our tents and slept. And I dreamed of a woman's face, a bride's face on a high mountain. And somehow the face was the mountain itself, and the mountain was a face. And it was cold, icy cold. And a voice said in my ear something that I dimly remembered from the Bible, from Isaiah. How beautiful upon the mountain. And the music of the flute dissolved into a great crashing chord. <laughs> Blackness of a frigid morning. 
I need not tell you of the next few weeks of the ascent to the camp at 23,000 feet, hardly a mile below the summit. If you have climbed mountains, you will know it to be an endless nightmare of traversing great rocky slopes, of scaling precipitous walls, of making our way cautiously across the ice bridges that span crevasses as deep as infinity. Days of toiling upward, roped together sometimes, only to find a way blocked by a new fall of rock or a snowslide our guides had forgotten. Inching our way up rock chimneys, hammering our pitons laboriously into the face of the living rock and climbing a foot at a time up walls where one misstep, one missed grip, would have sent both our bodies tumbling to a horrid death a thousand feet below. Days of clawing our way through sudden snowstorms with a biting flake so thick that we'd lose each other at ten feet distance. In the midday halts to gulp scalding tea, wolf down a bar of chocolate, and then rise and go on again. And behind us, the diminishing string of porters carrying our supplies, dropping off at regular intervals to set up camp against our return. If we should return. And then the agony of the last few thousand feet. At those heights, of course, exhaustion was our greatest enemy. The oxygen of 20,000 feet is pitifully thin. Each upward step is a lifetime. And the brain reels up there in the rarefied atmosphere that man is not meant to breathe. We made the 26,000-foot camp and we climbed another 1,000 feet. I'm not sure whether the way grows more difficult as one goes higher. Perhaps the rock formations are no more forbidding at that elevation than they are at the lower levels. But here the strain on mind and muscle and heart is so magnified that the slightest setback is enough to cause a, a strong man to fall down and weep loud, freezing tears of frustration. I remember that our guides would go no farther than we struggled upward alone that one morning. At the end of the day, we were a bare 200 feet above them. It seemed to take half the night to get our tents pitched. And I have little doubt it actually did. And I sank into delicious sleep. And again I dreamed. I dreamed of the woman again. A surpassingly beautiful woman. With eyes like the crystals of ice that made up our world. And about her hair, she wore a great white scarf, a kind of plume that moved as if it were a living thing, billowing out over her shoulders, never still, seeming not to be blown by the wind, but to control the wind itself. And I, I knew something about the plume. Although my tired mind could not remember what it was, I knew. And I tried to look into her eyes, but she was looking beyond me. And in my dream, I turned. And I knew she was looking at John Shandler. And on his face was a look of ineffable adoration. And when I turned to gaze at her again, the same look of love was in her eyes. And the veil, the plume whipped around, and I felt it brush my face like an icy lash. And it reached out and encircled John Shandler's and and I awoke. And when John Shanderson awoke, he spoke of a dream he had had. The most amazing dream, old boy. Dreamed of the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Posed, like a bride. Had a great white veil. Blowing in the wind. 
smiled at me. Most real dream I ever had. She was barefooted in all this cold. And the veil wrapped it around me. Must be going, mustn't we? And he crawled out of the tent into the clear, cold dawn of the high altitude. And in a moment I heard him calling. Brent! Brent, old boy! Brent, I say, come out! What's up? Come out! I found something! I crawled out with great effort to find him on his knees at the side of the tent, staring at something in the hard packed snow. What is it? I asked. He pointed. Look! There! And I looked. There in the snow were a woman's footprints. A woman's bare footprints in the age-old snow where no human being had ever been before. On my knees, I examined them carefully. A woman had stood there for a long time and then turned away. And the footprints in the snow led upward. I lifted my head and looked up at the top of the mountain, still far above us in the rays of the first sun. And the veil, the plume of Everest, fluttered coldly against the dark blue of the sky. You said superstition when I talked about what was out here, Brandt. You know it wasn't superstition. You saw the footprints. You saw how easy it was to follow them this morning. You know we've climbed three times as far today as we ever climbed before. She's leading us. She wants us to come on up to her. Do you remember the night we started? When I spoke about going to meet my bride? Do you remember, Brent? Yes. I remember I've not taken leave of my senses, have I, Brent? Not unless I have to. My name is John Chandler. My family's coat of arms is Argent and Pyle Gillard. The days of the week are Monday, Tuesday, <coughs> Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Friday Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. Is that right? That's right. And we did see the footprints. Yes. We saw them. Are you afraid, you? Afraid? Yes. No. I'm not afraid. Not for me. What then? I had the dream too. Why did you say you're not afraid by yourself? Because in the dream, she chose you. Yes. I know that. You're not afraid? Why should I be afraid? Of my bride. And then we slept again. And in the morning we went higher. The way was more difficult for me, but Chandler seemed to find it almost easy. We were on the very ledge from which Lee Mallory and Irvine disappeared in the folds of the plume. I recognized it dimly from the photographs and motion pictures that Captain Noel had made years before, as the two men slowly made their way along the rock wall not 2,000 feet from the summit. That scene will never leave my mind. And I knew we were almost in the exact spot where they had been snatched away. 
At any second, I thought. The cold caress of the veil, the plume, will fall on us. And then, the silence has returned. I was seized with a desperate desire to turn back, but Chandos was marching on ahead easily. While I made most heavy going on it. We were roped together and there was nothing to do but follow. I stumbled more and more frequently. And at last I could go no farther. I sank down in the snow, close beside the wall with a, a sheer precipice at my elbow. And shadows came back to me, having felt the pull of the rope at its waist. <coughs> Not much further, you. I... I can't make it. Well, higher than any man has ever been before. Look up. I looked up. It was scarcely 500 feet to go. My tired eyes told me. Scarcely 500 feet. I can't. Go on without me. No, I won't. I can't go any farther. Tomorrow, then? No. Well, what will we do? I'm going back. You can't do that, Hugh. Yes. Well, I'll go back down with you. But let me go on ahead for just a moment. We're so close now. Let me see if I can go on up to the top by myself. <coughs> And if I can, I will. Then I'll come back and we'll both go back down. Will you let me do that? If, if you like. It's easy. You can go on up to. It's a pity to be this far. Then turn back. Do what you like. You'll stay right here. Huh. I'll stay here. I'll hurry, old boy. Eat a bit of chocolate. <coughs> what? Why do you have to go and leave me? I've got to see if somebody's there, old boy. I was already falling into a half stupor as he turned and went up the ledge. And for a little while I slept, I think. Alone on a 16-inch ledge five miles above the ground. And I remember confused dreams of a beautiful bride with a veil of sparkling ice crystals. And there was strange music in my ears. And presently, the sound of John Chandler's voice in disappointment. <coughs> Come on, old chap. We're going back down. Down? There's no way to the top. What do you mean? There's an absolutely unclimbable wall. Just around that corner. No way? No way, old boy. No way at all. The rock face leans outward. I looked at it from every angle. There's just no way. So, come on. And as he 
as he lifted me to my feet, there was the softest little sound as of something dropping into the snow beside us. I leaned against the wall as Shandos bent and picked it up. He looked at it very curiously for a long moment. And finally I mumbled. What is it? And he stretched out his hand to me. And in it was a full-blown, green-stemmed white rose. And when I took it from him, the frozen thing shattered into a million glittering fragments. And I looked at John Chandler's face, and it was transfigured with a joy and a hope, such as I have never seen in any man. My gaze went on beyond him upward, upward. And against the darkening sky, the great veil that streamed from the mountaintop slowly wheeled around and down toward us. And it seemed not like a whip to lash us to an icy death, but like the compassionate arms of a beloved woman stretched out to her lover. And then as its coldness enveloped us, I heard the beginning of an avalanche's roar above me and the sound of great bursts of triumphant music. John Chandos was played by Roy Irving, late of the Dublin Gate Theater. Music was played by Albert Berman, as usual, who also composes the special music heard on Quiet Please. Now, for a word about next week's Quiet Please, and his usual little insertion, my good friend, Willis Cooper. The two principal characters in tonight's Quiet Please are, of course, fictitious and sprang to mature life from the keyboard of my typewriter, so don't think they're anybody you ever knew. They aren't. Quiet Please for next week will be called There Are Shadows Here. And so, until next week at the same time, and... There are shadows here. I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell.
Ask yourself this question. Do I practice prejudice in any way? You know, your answer is very important. Because after all, you simply can't hold a grudge against any of your fellow Americans and be a good American yourself. In this country today, the forces of bigotry and intolerance are definitely at work, undermining the principles of our freedom and equality upon which this nation was founded. If you help these forces of group hatred, you enlist yourself on their side and against America itself. And you also do help these forces every time you speak out against your neighbor, because he attends a different church or if he had ancestors of a different religion. Remember, your personal behavior can encourage respect for other races, tolerance for other religions, so don't betray this country by spreading a doctrine of hate and prejudice against fellow Americans. Do your part to make freedom a living reality. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.